As the 2020 Australian of the Year, Dr. James Mukey had a platform to make a difference. He'd already started a charity, Sight for All, helping prevent blindness in, in third world countries. He now is embarking on a way to stop Australia's most common form of preventable blindness, diabetes. He looks at how sugar works in the body and how to change your relationship to sugar and change your relationship to health. You're really going to like listening to Dr. James Mukey. So James Mukey, welcome to the Reset Podcast. So tell me, why is it good being you? <laughs> why is it good being me? Oh, I have an amazing life. I have a fascinating life. Uh, I've always, I've always sought adventure, I suppose, and I make the most of every hour of my life. And uh, it's just a, a, a rich and varied life. I think that that would be fair to say. You know, I. Um, I'm a doctor, I'm an eye surgeon, I have a clinical practice, although that's uh, curtailed a bit due to a neurological problem that I have, uh, and that's okay, I'm, I'm cool with that. Uh, but I also run a not-for-profit called Sight for All, which is why I received the award last year, and, and that is uh, a social impact organisation dedicated to fighting blindness. Uh, so I used to call those my two full-time jobs, so they were pretty consuming, and then there's right. other... Uh, other thing landed early last year, uh, which is another full-time job thrown in the mix. So life is very full uh, and very interesting, pretty challenging. So it's good to be me. I, I, I like to throw a very keen traveller as well, and, and I love to photograph and document my travels and my experiences. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I, my life uh, is just brilliant. And, and when I get to the end of my life, I want to look back over my life and realise I've made the most of, of every moment. That's, that's a fantastic way to live it, isn't it, to be able to, to look back and see that. And Well, some of your journey started in places like Kenya and Myanmar. And tell me, tell me how those sorts of things panned out and, and what went on then. Sure. Well, I think it was my father that really instilled a love of travel and adventure. And we actually lived in the United States for a couple of years and in the early seventies and every opportunity where we actually dad, uh, mum and dad bought a, a camper van and every opportunity we used to go and explore the country and just see the most extraordinary beauty that uh, the United States has to offer. So from those early years, I had this passion for travel. Uh, I was very keen uh, to become a doctor, you know, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor um, and particularly, I wanted to be a surgeon and, and to use my hands to do fine work. So microsurgery was really appealing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, I used to love building, you know, tiny model airplanes, World War II tanks and things like that. So had a love of using my hands, wanted to do medicine, uh, wanted to incorporate travel into that. And so it sort of rolled on from there in my Uh, latter years of medical school. In fact, at the end of fifth year, we had the opportunity to do an elective and I chose to go and do that in Kenya and Africa, East Africa. And that was really on the back of this, you know, long-standing fascination with Africa, its its landscape, its wildlife, its people. So um, that was really quite a turning point for me. I, I came across this little hospital in the mountains in Kenya and I vowed that one day I would come back and work in that hospital. So during my internship, I was becoming a little disillusioned. So this stage, your early 20s in fifth year at uh, medical school? Fifth year would have been early 20s, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I can't remember the exact year, but it would have been uh, something like that. I would have been um, 20 years of age, something like that. And, 
Yeah, so I, I during my internship, becoming a little disillusioned with medicine, really just treating patients who had diseases that were chronic and self-inflicted, uh, predominantly related to smoking back in those days. So I just wanted a change. And so through my intern year, I actually saved through my entire year so that I can volunteer as a general doctor back at this little hospital in the mountains of Kenya, in central Kenya. And that was just such a, an amazing year. It really reinvigorated the love of medicine for me because I was now seeing patients and, and actually being able to cure patients whose diseases were not self-inflicted. They were mainly related to infectious diseases such as malaria and TB. So at the end of that year, I, I knew I wanted to continue working in public health in poor countries. I knew I wanted to use my hands to perform microsurgery. So the opportunity to train in ophthalmology and eye surgery was there, and I returned to Adelaide at the end of that year in, in Kenya uh, to start my training and, and uh, ultimately graduated as an eye surgeon. Because that's and, not an easy uh, thing to get into. They don't take too many trainee eye surgeons very often. It's a, it's a very hard, very um, competitive thing to get into. It really is. And uh, I remember the what we call our primary exam, which is our entrance exam, was a 10% first-time pass rate. So the first time you said it, you only had a 10% chance of passing. So that was a real bottleneck for us. And so that was a terrifying thing. I actually took six months off to study full-time to prepare for that. So because uh, I just did not want to sit it again. It was expensive. It was, you know, just a hugely difficult thing to do. So fortunately, I was able to get in there first time. But what was, uh, what was this was a really interesting turning point for me because during my intern year, I was toying with the idea of ophthalmology. It really, really appealed to me, this, this idea of microsurgery to cure blindness. And I was also toying with some other surgical uh, specialties such as neurosurgery and and most of the, the let's say the surgical hierarchy in the hospital where I was working were discouraging me from going to Africa. I was really wanting to do this and just have this year off to to reset, rethink about what I was doing. Uh, and most of the surgeons were actually discouraging me from doing that, saying, "Oh, you'll never get back into the system. You'll you know you'll lose your opportunity to to train as a surgeon." Then I met the head of ophthalmology at the hospital where I was working, the Royal Adelaide Hospital. His name is Colin Moore. Unfortunately, he's since passed away. But Colin was very encouraging, actually. He said he absolutely encouraged me to go and spend this year working in this hospital in Africa. So I, I went off with his blessing. And, and fortunately, while I was in the operating theatre at this hospital in Kenya, he called me towards the end of my year uh, saying that he'd uh, accepted me into the training program here. So that was pretty exciting. I um, really slipped in, I think, through the back door, through that opportunity that Colin Moore provided to me. So I'm very grateful to him. It's amazing how sometimes those things that you think that probably opened the door, the fact that he knew you were the sort of person that could pass it first time and you were, had that consciousness of wanting to go to Africa was probably one of the things that might have sparked his interest and got you a, you know, a very elusive prize. Absolutely. And I think uh, the fact that what well, he actually said to me that if, if it was you and another person at a similar level, the fact that you've gone and broadened your horizons and, and sought this opportunity beyond life here in, in Australia, that uh, that was really a positive thing that he saw in, in me. The, the other interesting thing, I mean, sliding door moments, I, I very much encourage people to embrace because, you know, you never know where they'll lead you. And, and I actually missed out on Sydney University Medicine by one mark 
uh, right. back during my, my HSC. I, I actually grew up in Canberra uh, and there was no medical school in Canberra at the time and all my friends, my girlfriend, were all going to Sydney to university, but I missed out by one mark and that was pretty devastating. But it allowed me then to come to Adelaide. I actually, I was born in Adelaide. I've a lot of family and friends in Adelaide, so it was my second choice. And as a result of that sliding door moment, coming to Adelaide to study and, and spend my life here has uh, opened up these incredible opportunities for me and allowed me to achieve what I've achieved in my life. Yeah, nice, nice. And how, how did then, so you've gone and done your, your ophthalmology and all of that. And beca- what, what sort of ophthalmologist were you? What, what did you specialise in? inside ophthalmology so i finished my basic training and then my final year you can do whatever you like really you can do what's called a fellowship you can train in a subspecialty you can go and work uh, anywhere in the world uh, or you can stay in your hometown and, and work uh, as your final year but i chose to actually work as an ophthalmologist in jerusalem in the middle east in, in um, right. uh, yeah uh, and and i worked there in i think it was 95 96 uh in a hospital run by St John's organisation, which ninety five ninety six, that wouldn't have been the safest place in the world either. I wouldn't imagine it was reasonably calm time to be there, and, was and we absolutely. And I was married; I'd been married for a couple of years, and my wife and I set off in this fabulous, you know, it's more adventure, more experience. Uh, um, so that was uh, a big driving force for me to do it. it uh, there were a number of my colleagues here in Adelaide who had taken this fellowship at St John's Eye Hospital. And this has been around for 100 years, and it's, a, it's an old bastion of the Crusader times. The Knights of St John's were what, what were called the Hospitaller Knights. They were the ones that looked after the sick knights and pilgrims on these right. Crusades. But um, that's just a bit of history. But uh, the, the hospital now falls in Palestinian territory, so it's mainly serving Palestinian people. And that was just another brilliant year for me. It allowed me to really hone my surgical skills, but it also gave me the confidence and competence to, to return to Australia to, to work as an eye surgeon. Uh, you know, just a brilliant, a brilliant experience on so many levels. But one of the things I really loved was the opportunity to undertake uh, eye clinics in refugee camps in the Gaza Strip and in the, in the West Bank and uh, lots of uh, very interesting experiences that came as a result of that. But after that time in Jerusalem, I then went on to, to London and you asked about my training in ophthalmology. I, I then uh, undertook subspecialty training uh, at Moorfields Eye Hospital in eye cancer. So I'm an eye cancer specialist and ultimately returned to Adelaide uh, to take up positions at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and Women's and Children's Hospital in mid-98. And I've been in Adelaide since that time. What happened with the neurological issues? Because you have an issue with your right hand and that, that very specialist fine motor skills to do any sort of eye surgery. So what happened there? Yeah, so I've, I have a condition called focal dystonia, which I don't even remember reading about during medical school, but but basically it's a, a cortical neurodegenerative disease. I inherited it from my father. Actually, dad had it. And... Uh, Probably the, the best example I can give you now, if I actually held a champagne glass with my right hand, I would smash it. I've got no control over how hard I hold something. Um, but it really manifested uh, in, in back in 2012, around about that sort of time. I was just holding those very fine instruments with my right hand, which is my dominant hand, with increasing force. And it was really just manifesting as, as discomfort in my hand. And, you know, during the end of the long operating list, you know, it was just, uh, it was, uh, it was just, uh, it was just uncomfortable. Uh, and it wasn't impacting on my surgical skills. Um, but it was 
also manifesting in other ways, you know, just writing. I was having more and more difficulty writing. I was holding the pen so hard. Uh, and then eventually I received a diagnosis um, in, in 2004 from a neurological colleague. But, but within a year, so a year later, I had to change writing to my left hand, where I still write to this day, and had to then also uh, use my left hand for a number of other one-handed tasks that I would normally have done with my right hand, such as using the computer mouse, typing. And these days, really, my right hand is pretty useless. I still sign with my right hand, uh, but that, even that's becoming very difficult. And uh, I ended up giving up um, cataract surgery in 13. Uh, fortunately, I hadn't put any of my patients at risk, but I sensed that I was going to get close to that. Uh, and really, since that time, I practice as a non-operating ophthalmologist and, and really dealing with what we call medical retinal conditions. So that also includes uh, the eye cancers and tumours of the eyes. Mm-hmm. But with the surgery, I now refer those on to colleagues who I've specifically trained up to do those surgeries. And uh, uh, so I'm dealing with, with those conditions. Also, the blinding complications of diabetes, age-related macular degeneration and some other uh, medical retinal conditions like that. So, it's, yeah, I, I guess that you really do need both hands and to be able to do that. So that makes it very hard. But there's a lot of ophthalmology that, with, in terms of medical retina that you can still do. And do you still practice a lot today? Don't I you am. Have three, because you have three full-time jobs in the last 12 months. So, Well, the, the, the full-time jobs, uh, certainly once I finished my surgery and, and retired from the Women's and Children's Hospital, the Royal Adelaide Hospital, I retired from last year, the Women's and Children's before that, uh, the surgery, I, I completed all surgeries in 2016. And, and so it's, over the years, it slowly trimmed down. But it, it used to be my, my two full-time jobs. I'm now down to a day and a half week in my clinical practice but interestingly, last week I was going to retire as uh, I was actually um, being forced into an early retirement because of this hand problem. Because it is a two-handed job, it's just becoming more and more difficult. And uh, I was actually uh, was hoping to hand over to a colleague last year who I'd organised to take over from me, but he's decided at this stage he's not going to do it. So I'm hanging in there for a bit longer, but still reasonably comfortable to, to, to keep on pushing on for another six to 12 months. So... Uh, yeah, it's um, it's a potentially confronting situation for a doctor or a surgeon that spent so much of their life preparing training to to uh, be a surgeon uh, and all of the dedication and commitment that, that takes. But you know, with my positive nature, I'm embracing the change and actually uh, ultimately looking forward to what the next stage of life will bring. In between that, too, we also started. You also started site for site for all. Can you can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so site for all, really when I returned to Adelaide in mid-98 and I had this love of working in poorer countries and I told you about my experience in, in Kenya and, and also in the Middle East and Jerusalem and uh, when I returned to Adelaide, uh, that was going to be my base, my home, but to keep this love of working in poorer countries alive, I started getting involved in a number of research and education projects in Asia with some colleagues here at Royal Adelaide Hospital and that sort of fueled, continued to fuel my my interest and my love of, of that work. And that evolved into in about nineteen, around about in the year two thousand, uh, into what we call the Vision Myanmar program, which was a program I established with some colleagues uh, working in Myanmar in Southeast Asia at that time, one of the poorest countries in the world. And it was really uh, about educating colleagues. In poorer countries, uh, cataract surgery 
is the leading cause of blindness. Um, and that's something like 90% of the blindness in poorer countries is due to cataract blindness. Mm-hmm. But the focus over many years from not-for-profits who've been working in this space was really all about cataract blindness and teaching colleagues to do cataract surgery. But my argument, my concern is that there are quite literally hundreds of eye diseases, uh, many blinding, some disfiguring and deadly. I mentioned eye cancer being, being one of my specialties. So I saw this real lack of understanding of some of these other blinding diseases that were being poorly managed, not through any fault of our colleagues, just that they simply hadn't had the exposure to the training that we receive here. So I started a training program with the lead uh, teaching institute in Myanmar, Yangon Eye Hospital in the capital city, to start to comprehensively train colleagues so that they could deal with all blinding diseases. And so that then evolved into a more comprehensive uh, uh, blindness prevention program in Myanmar. We received funding from the Australian government to allow us to uh, fit out uh, and provide education in regional centres across the country and a number of other things that we became involved in. And that ultimately uh, morphed into Site for All in 2007. And Site for All was really the evolution of the Vision Myanmar program and some other projects that we were running out of the hospital out of the Royal Adelaide Hospital Eye Department uh, in a number of countries in Asia. And so we felt that by setting up Site for All, we could better fundraise, better manage the projects that we were doing. So Site for All then became uh, this uh, not-for-profit, which has grown uh, hugely over the last 14 or so years. And it's actually why I received the award was the uh, because of the work that I put into that uh, not-for-profit organisation. And the comprehensive and sustainable impact which is now you know reaching about a million people every year um, it, mu- it must have been a, a great almost a, a real challenge to have the the neurological issues you have but then having that purpose of of sight for all and a positive attitude must have just been invaluable to sort of keep you going when it must have been pretty frustrating to have worked so hard for so long and then have it taken away from you by something that wasn't really anything that's your fault Yep, absolutely. And but the fortunate thing is, because it's a slowly progressive condition, you know, I had time to think about it and adapt and adjust to it. So that was that was fortunate for me. You know, for example, I could have had a neurological condition that suddenly landed. Like I have a colleague who's had to um, retire from cardiac surgery because of multiple sclerosis. So, you know, that suddenly impacted on him. And, and I think that's a much more devastating and confronting experience. But whether it's acute or whether it's a chronic situation that lands, whether it's medical or non-medical, whether it's just a calamity that's happened in your life, you know, the, there's a, a number of steps that you can take to actually deal with it. And uh, uh, to me, there's three critical steps in dealing with anything like this that lands in your life. One is keeping a cool head. And I like to use the example of uh, when the pandemic broke early last year, um, people went out in a frenzy buying toilet paper and, mm. and, you know, clearly heads were not cool. There was this knee-jerk sort of stress reaction. It was our primitive brain taking over from the rational thinking part of the brain. So you actually have to reverse that. You need to actually allow your prefrontal cortex, your rational brain, to take over from the primitive brain and start to, to rationalise what you are going through. So once you start to do that uh, and, and, and you tell yourself, okay, I'm going to get through this, and I remember, again, back to early last year when, when Scott Morrison was telling us, you know, we will get through this. And it's really important to tell you that, uh, to t- tell yourself that we will get through this or I will get through this. And I would 
telling myself that. And, and it then starts to move you into a more positive mindset. And when you're in a positive mindset, you can then say, right, okay, I'm going to get through this. So how am I going to get through this? Well, I'm going to get through this by, by innovating, by creating. And, and that's why, to me, the third critical step is innovation. So cool head, positive mind, and innovation. And so what I did through those through those years of my progressive uh, deterioration in hand function is a series of micro-innovations that allowed me to continue practicing and to continue to be engaged, in, in, especially in the profession that I loved. And uh, um, it's served me well today. Yeah, that's well, it's a fantastic three things to be, able to, to be able to go through that process and the fact that you had a little bit of time to do that. One of the things I'm loving that you're doing now, and it's a, um, I read a book recently called Upstream by Dan Heath, and it was, it was talking about how we can do certain things, and if you go upstream, you can actually make a much bigger impact, although you might not see it. And I guess a lot of the work that you're trying to make people aware of now is the taking your diet and things like that upstream to start preventing things like diabetes. And uh, I'd really love to hear some of your takes on, on some of those solutions and some actionable things that people can do to sure. actually uh, could, improve that. Sure thing, Luke. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. Yes, we <laughs> Maybe could. we need another podcast. So uh, as an ophthalmologist of, of over 31 years, uh, I've been dealing with the blinding consequences of diabetes. In fact, every year I'm seeing more and more patient, patients who are losing vision and going blind, particularly to type 2 diabetes, which makes up close to 90% of all cases of diabetes. But as an ophthalmologist, I was dealing with the end-stage complications. Uh, actually, loss of vision is the leading, the leading, oh, sorry, the most feared complication of, of diabetes amongst patients who have the disease. And yet I was really just seeing myself as dealing with these end-stage complications rather than going back to the root cause, which is our poor diet. I was really thinking that was the realm of the, the general practitioner, the endocrinologist, the dietitian, the nutritionist. And it wasn't until 2018 when I was involved in the documentary that I was creating about the experience of blindness. And I met a a man, his name is Neil Hanson, he doesn't mind me using his name, and uh, he went to bed one evening with normal sight at the age of 50 and woke up the next morning blind in both eyes and remains blind to this day. And his story was so powerful that it really made me sit up and think, you know, I need to do something about this. I need to raise awareness of the blinding consequences of, of diabetes. Uh, and it is a seriously blinding condition in our society. But what's important to know is that about 98% of the loss of vision and blindness due to diabetes is either preventable or treatable. And yet to avoid the blinding consequences of this disease, patients need to have their eyes checked on a regular basis every year or two if they have uh, diabetes. Um, but what we find in Australia, there are about 1.7 million with diabetes and well over half are not having these critical sight-saving eye checks, and it's now become the leading cause of blindness amongst working-age adults in this country. So it, it, this is why, because people with diabetes are not having their eye checks. In Aboriginal people, it's the fastest-growing cause of vision loss as well. So when I was... Um, uh, I created a TV commercial featuring Neil Hansel in late 2018, and then in 2019, uh, I was starting to focus more on on encouraging people here in Australia to to have their their eyes checked. And uh, when I happened to 
received the South Australian Award for South Australian of the Year, my acceptance speech, that was what I was encouraging. But then coming forward to the National Australia Day um, uh, Awards in January 2020, I just felt this deeper responsibility. I wasn't expecting to win the award, but I thought if I do, this is Australia of the Year, the biggest health crisis we have at the moment is this epidemic of type 2 diabetes. Don't I have a responsibility to raise awareness of type 2 diabetes uh, and how it's arisen? And so um, when I did receive the award, it gave me this incredibly powerful platform to to raise awareness and get these messages out, which I've been working uh, seriously hard on for the last uh, year and a half. And what what do you think if if you you have the ears of some pretty powerful people? What if you had a magic wand and could wave it around? What's a couple of things you would get governments to do to to sort of help this sort of sugar crisis and the, and the diabetes epidemic? What what things would you like to see put in place? Yes, so we we need action, uh, and I've, I have a series of A's that I've uh, drawn on to to talk about this. So we need action, and we need action from our government. Yes, um, but we need action uh, across multiple channels, <clears throat> and the action really comes down to three overarching A's of awareness, accountability, and assistance. So if we if we just go through these each in turn, so awareness of the addictive power of sugar, and that we use it to alleviate stress in our lives. Uh, sugar is also a major ingredient of ultra-processed foods or what I call ultra-processed food-like substances. So sugar, uh, refined carbohydrates, which are quite simply sugar in disguise, and the seed oils, what we euphemistically call the vegetable oils, these are critical drivers of insulin resistance, fatty liver, uh, and metabolic syndrome, which is underpinning our poor metabolic health. And they are the key ingredients for ultra-processed foods. So raising awareness of the health dangers of ultra-processed foods. And if we look at sugar alone, there are over 8,000 studies linking sugar to a range of chronic diseases, particularly type 2 diabetes. So also raising awareness of the preventability of type 2, but also the reversibility of type 2. This is a disease that can be put into remission and yet something that most of my colleagues have no idea about. Also, awareness of the complications of diabetes, but particularly type 2 diabetes, not just the blinding consequences, but uh, the loss of limb amputation of gangrenous I had, limbs. I had Gary Fetke on the podcast a few weeks ago, and um, yeah, he's a very passionate man, and um, about about how diabetes. You know, he spends a lot of his days chopping feet off of people that the diabetes has mucked up the circulation in their feet, and their feet are gangrenous and need to come off. And it's absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? And I guess blindness from retinopathies and stuff like that are. Uh, same same sort of thing. All yes, we've come to it. Absolutely. We've come to it from different angles, but both from a surgical angle. Uh, and Gary is um, a good friend and been an amazing mentor to me. So over 4,000 amputations performed uh, every year for patients in Australia with type 2. But there are a number of other things, and without wanting to go into great detail about, detail about all the complications, just a few confronting ones, uh, kidney failure, it's the leading cause of kidney failure. About four and a half million hours are spent by patients with type 2 hooked up to a dialysis machine, having their blood filtered every single wow. year. Uh, That's another, and, another great crusader in this same thing is Jason Fung, who's a nephrologist. So exactly. the, the three of you are almost like the, the specialist collective that uh, are fighting the good fight to try and save, save eyes, feet and kidneys. Yeah, we certainly are, and uh, it's uh, 
but we need we need a much bigger army behind us, and we're, we're rallying that army, which is fantastic. But the, just a couple of other things. So, seventy percent of patients with type two will ultimately develop dementia, uh, and I lost a father to dementia, and so this is a disease that impacts heavily not just on the individual but the family. And eighty percent will ultimately succumb to a. Um, a thrombotic complication such as stroke uh, or heart attack. So it's a deadly disease. It's an insidious disease. And it's something that we as an Australian society need to be fully aware of. And yet to this day on free-to-air TV, there's nothing that I've seen that has been raising awareness of the things that I've just mentioned. So that's that's awareness. awareness. Is our first day? So accountability is the second day. Right. And accountability, again, of, of, of government, uh, but also of businesses and industry to do the right thing uh, by the people of Australia. And I came up with this concept, just to sidetrack slightly, before I received the award last year, I was thinking about, you know, the impact of sugar in our diet. And I came up with this concept called the five A's of sugar toxicity. So just briefly, uh, addiction. So sugar is highly addictive. It's as addictive as nicotine, uh, Alleviation, we often use sugar to alleviate stress or to make us feel better. Accessibility, our world is flooded, uh, absolutely flooded uh, with um, cheap and highly accessible sugary products and ultra-processed foods. Fourth A, addition, something like 75% of our food and drinks have added sugar. And fifth A is advertising. You know, we are bombarded relentlessly on a daily basis by TV commercials and ads for sugary products. Yep. So if we look at the accountability, you know, if we look at the predatory marketing that goes on, for example, in supermarkets where you're at the checkout counter and you're being enticed by half-price soft drinks and, and, and chocolates, the predatory marketing is insidious and it's everywhere uh, in our lives. If we look at um, the fifth A I mentioned, advertising, our children are subjected to ads for unhealthy food foodstuffs uh, three times in every hour. On social media, our kids are exposed to 100 promotion for unhealthy foods every week. So once again, this insidious predatory marketing through advertising uh, is going on. If we look at the addition A, we need a clear front of pack labelling system. At the moment, we have a very flawed health star rating system, which is only voluntary. Only about 30% of manufacturers are using it. But it's also an industry device which was created by industry for industry. And, and so it actually gives healthy four and four and five star ratings to uh, unhealthy ultra processed things like products. muesli bars that are you know 25% sugar yep so sugar again refined carbohydrates and the seed oils often make up many of these ultra processed foods and they've all been, been linked to to chronic diseases so you can see there's a serious level of accountability that's needed here and then the final a is assistance and the, there's a whole range of opportunities and and, and one of the things that uh, staggers me, my son's in third-year medicine last year during second-year medicine, he had the opportunity to do nutrition as an elective. It wasn't even compulsory. And yet this is the biggest driver of our poor health in the country, in fact, uh, in the world. So our poor diet, which is laced with sugary drinks and ultra-processed foods, is responsible for more disease and death than alcohol, nicotine, tobacco, and inactivity combined. So... Critical, critical training that's got to be, begin uh, during medical school. Uh, you know, our GPs need the resources to be able to dedicate time uh, to educating their patients with metabolic disorders. Our patients need assistance. They need to have access to um, people with metabolic disorders and, and particularly 
prevalently lower socioeconomic areas and amongst Aboriginal people, they need access to healthy, real foods rather than having to rely on this ultra-processed junk that uh, is so cheap and readily accessible. Uh, and, you know, teachers needed assistance to be able to train children from those earliest days on the best way to eat. Parents needed assistance to know what to pack in lunchboxes. And it could go on, but you can see how we need an overarching strategy which deals with all of these three A's. Um, you can't just cherry pick and do do one thing it's just not going to have the impact that we need and just some examples you might be aware that um, orange juice was recently downgraded from five to two stars you know that's one tiny little piece of the puzzle in western australia they've recently banned sugary drinks from from hospitals another little piece of the puzzle but um, some of the other other countries in the world the uk have banned certain types of advertising um in different times to, to try and stop people getting subjected to so much advertising around food, which I, I think is a, it's a small step, but it's a step in the right direction. It is, and, and, and uh, really that was what I mentioned earlier about accountability for the advertising that we're mm. bombarding our kids and, and uh, you name it. I mean, you know, there are chocolate bars which have the, uh, which have the symptoms of sugar withdrawal actually written on the pack. You know, basically, and, and, and businesses and their industry allies and their supermarkets office supply stores, uh, even chemists who are preying on the vulnerable, preying on our children and, and preying on people who have addictions and quite sometimes quite uh, powerful psychological addictions to sugary products. So, you know, the accountability factor is really critical here. But, but ultimately, you know, we need our government to, to take action to ensure all these things happen simultaneously. And uh, at the moment, you know, when, when so much of the food industry is about jobs and profit and, and money coming into the economy, the priority is profits over health. And this is particularly disturbing. So uh, we need a brave government to stand up and, 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 and uh, take it to the, uh, the, the, the processed food industry, and particularly the ultra-processed food industry. Would you use the precedent of tobacco? That tobacco had, you know, it seems it's almost like it's a parallel. It's just 40 years later that we kind of realised that big tobacco was killing people. And instead of sort of working out better ways to treat lung cancer, we went back and prevented people from, from smoking. Do you think there's a parallel there? And what, how would that parallel look going forward? There's completely a parallel. So if we look at uh, tobacco smoking, something like 80% of men smoke cigarettes uh, in the years after World War II. Now that's down to 14, 1-4%. So what happened, but it took decades. It wasn't until the 60s that we realised the health dangers of smoking. And then, you know, really in those several decades, we saw a number of things happen. We saw banning of advertising for cigarettes. We saw taxing of tobacco products. We saw, you know, these graphic awareness strategies that we all know very well, those um, those graphic images on cigarette packs and so forth. So there were a number of strategies that we used for tobacco, but it did take decades and there was huge industry pushback. And I think there's no doubt that, that the, the vast majority of people would say that uh, tobacco smoking is unhealthy for us. If we look at our poor diet and ultra-processed food and the power and the might of the ultra-processed food industry, some of the biggest corporations in the world, and we look at the fact that it's not just one thing, tobacco, it's sugarcane farming, it's sugar processing industry, it's the sugar industry, it's the cereals and grain industry, the refined carbohydrates, it's the sugary drinks industry, it's the ultra-processed food industry. It's huge. It's actually much bigger. It's much bigger uh, than tobacco ever was. And so it's going to be a much bigger battle uh, and uh, it's going to take 
I suspect, quite some time. I was hoping to achieve a lot last year. I managed to achieve quite a bit in my role as Australian of the Year for 2020, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. Uh, and there's no one individual and no one entity, even no one government that can actually tackle this. So what I'm trying to do is rally together a number of um, individuals and entities and going forward under, a same, uh, under the same banner of making Australia type 2 free. I guess the barrier is it's easy to, oh, it's not easy, but you can stop smoking and you, it's very hard to get sugar out of your diet completely. It's because it's so, it's infiltrated just about everything around. So it's, you know, that, you know, you can, Get addicted to apples. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right, and and we've normalised that. You know, even the euphemisms, you know, sweetie and 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 honey, you know, their terms of endearment. You know, sugar is the only addictive substance we give to our babies and continue to give to our children, and really set them up for this lifetime of being addicted to sugar. I suspect actually much of the world is is addicted to sugar, uh, but there are very, and there's no doubt about the addictive power. If you've ever tried to detox from sugar, uh, it's really quite an unpleasant thing, but there are, you know, a number of ways that you can actually do that. And once you've actually detoxed from sugar, uh, you know, you're constantly surrounded by this diabolical food environment that we have, constantly trying to claw you back, uh, and it's really incredibly powerful. I know if I have uh, ice cream in the refrigerator, in the freezer, uh, that is calling out to me, and I find it so hard to resist, so it's so, so powerful. Mm. It's very, very difficult for people. And when you have a deep psychological addiction, and when we look at some of those deep addictions, there's two-thirds of people who are addicted have had serious uh, emotional, mental, sexual, physical trauma in childhood. So that addiction may manifest as addiction to sugar uh, or ultra-processed food, rather than drugs or alcohol or tobacco. I'm a massive fan of commitment devices. I actually have a thing here called a called a kitchen safe that uh, I know if I open a packet of Tim Tams, that whole packet of Tim Tams is probably going to go. So I actually yes. put those things in there. So if I want to have one or two, I can, and then put the rest away so I actually don't have access to it. So there's some little um, – I'm a big fan of habit change and sort of my, my new book's called Curious Habits and it's trying to work out different ways to change your habits so that it's not an uphill struggle. And I guess trying to find some of those with sugar is – is a really, really difficult thing to do. I know I, I struggle with it. Uh, absolutely. And again, there are so many examples of that. I mean, you know, just going to the movies and you normally get a, uh, you know, packet, a packet of lollies or, a, or an ice cream to go, that mm. becomes a habit. So, you, you know, you can start to work on some of those little habits uh, 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 and you know, start off small step by step and slowly building up. But uh, equally, you can go into a uh, cold turkey and that's what I did early last year in January when I thought, well, I better walk the talk if I'm going to be talking about this. I better practice what I preach. And, wow, it really hits you hard. Day one. So I, what I did was just give up the, the heavily sugared products in my diet, so confectionery, chocolate, um, ice cream, cakes, uh, biscuits, fruit juices and soft drinks. So some of those really obviously heavy sugared products. And literally day one, the symptoms hit and the symptoms are pretty unpleasant. Uh, headache, clouded thoughts, irritability, fatigue. But I think what's more powerful are the cravings, which are just drawing you back. And for me, the really, they built up over, over several days, but it wasn't until after day three that the symptoms started to ease off. Mm. I actually had to take a couple of Panadols every now and then to help me get through it. And that did work. And then after day three, you, you actually go, you go into this much more relaxed space where you're not walking into the kitchen and just being drawn to whatever's in the kitchen, which is sugary. 
Um, but some people, it may take even longer. It might take a week or two. Uh, but then you can actually look even more critically at your food and, and look at uh, all of the ultra-processed foods, the condiments, the sauces, which have so much sugar added to them, and start to reduce those in your diet, start to go from uh, you know, looking at your refined carbohydrates, pastas, rice, white potatoes, and the foods prepared from those, you know, start to look at options, minimise, you know, your consumption of those, or, or, or go from white to brown. You know, we, we love our rice and, and rather than white rice, which is highly refined, have brown rice or have whole, whole grain bread rather than the ultra-processed white breads. Uh, you know, have, when you're having potatoes, enjoy it with the skin on because the skin has a lot of the fibre and vitamin C that potatoes can provide. So, you know, it's just a matter of making all these little small steps which can actually ultimately have a, a big outcome. And I know for me, when I did that in January, uh, as we're going into the lockdown, I lost about 15 kilograms in, in, in two months and, and when wow. we came out of the lockdown, people were worried that I'd lost so much weight. They thought that I might have been unwell, but uh, yeah. it wasn't. It was just that I changed my diet. Wow. I'm, I'm a massive fan of fasting. I, I love all of Jason Fung's work. I've read the Obesity Code, the Diabetes Code. And are you familiar with Jason Fung? Absolutely. In fact, uh, Jason and I were chatting just recently uh, and, and read his books as well. And uh, that was the Bible. The Diabetes Code was the Bible that I used uh, early last year to really to give me that deep understanding of, of the insidious nature of our diet and how type 2 diabetes has evolved. So, you know, Jason, I'm a huge fan of it. And I'm actually a big fan of fasting as well. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, what's really interesting, if you look at, uh, if you look at um, that expression, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Who coined that? That was a coin by John Harvey Kellogg in 1906 to market his newly invented breakfast cereal cornflakes. So it's one of the greatest marketing tactics of all time. There was no evidence back then and there's no evidence now to say that we have to have breakfast. And um, so that's, that's uh, and I, I was giving a presentation recently and I asked people to put up their hand who'd heard that expression and everyone in the room knew that expression. So it shows you how clever that marketing tactic. There is no need for breakfast. In fact, I every day have a 16-8 fast. So after dinner through to lunch the next day, mm-hmm. I don't have any food. And what happens when you have this short-term fast? There are a number of metabolic uh, things that happen. One is your insulin level suddenly drops. And insulin level is a big driver of weight gain. So your insulin level suddenly drops. You get a burst of adrenaline, burst of growth hormone, and it's those things that can help drive weight loss when you have those short-term fasts. And Just some people that a little bit. Can you can you take people who aren't aware of of what insulin does, why it's so important? Okay, uh, so really, insulin is is um, a critical hormone uh, in in our consumption of food, particularly sugars. So when glucose, so if we look at sugar, uh, and if we look at Sucrose, which is the commonest sort of additive that we have here in Australia, it's 50% glucose, 50% fructose. When the glucose component is absorbed into the bloodstream, it immediately triggers the release of the hormone insulin from the pancreas. And the the insulin helps move that glucose into every cell of our body, whether it's either used as an energy source or stored. So it's a really important hormone, but it's also interesting to note that as soon as glucose arrives into the bloodstream, a hormone comes out to, to move into the cell. So you show, it shows you that it, it actually can be toxic. Now, the fructose component, which is the component of, of sugary products that give them their sweet flavour, is not recognised as a food by, a body, by the body. It doesn't trigger the release of, of insulin 
uh, it actually suppresses our appetite control. So it's actually it's actually a, a more dangerous uh, component of the sugar. We can come back to that in a moment. But let's say if we have um, prolonged and, and, and excessive intake of sugar, what happens is that our cells eventually become so full um, so the insulin level rises to try and push more glucose into our cells, but it reaches a stage where it can't push any more in. Uh, and that's when we become insulin resistant or in resistant to the effect of, of insulin. So what happens then is the liver uh, and the muscles take up the glucose and convert it into glycogen, which is actually a storage hormone, but the glycogen stores are only limited. And so what happens then is the liver starts converting the, the, the glucose into fat, and that fat is exported away from the liver and stored in healthy fat cells throughout the body. So it's actually a type of protective mechanism. But if we're consuming you know, sugar uh, from morning till night uh, and refined carbohydrates, what happens is that production of fat by the liver outstrips its ability to be exported away. And so the liver then starts taking on fat and we develop what's called a fatty liver. So a fatty liver, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, is critical in this um, metabolic dysfunction. And it's not just a fatty liver, but a fatty pancreas, which impairs the function of the cells in the pancreas that release insulin. So this is all tied up, and, and I don't want to get too more deeply into it, but this is all tied up in the metabolic dysfunction that leads to type 2 diabetes. On average, 13 years after we, uh, as adults, develop insulin resistance. In kids, however, it can develop within as little as two years. And a fatty liver in humans with excessive fructose intake can actually develop within as little as two months. So fructose, when it's taken up by the liver, about 30% is converted immediately to fat. So it's actually much more toxic in giving rise to a fatty liver. So you can see then how sugar plays a very important role in this. And the refined carbohydrates, which are sugar in disguise, they're virtually pure starch. And starch is just simply long chains of glucose, which are broken down into single molecules of glucose when they reach the gut. So here we have now more of a glucose load. And then we throw into the mix the seed oils, polyunsaturated oils, which for the last 50 years we've been told to consume rather than healthy, natural saturated fats such as found in butter. And we know that these seed oils can disrupt cellular function in the liver and, and, and directly give rise to insulin resistance in a fatty liver. And once again, coming back to these ultra-processed foods, which are made up of these three substances. Uh, you can see now why we're having this problem uh, with type 2 diabetes in our society. And when our insulin levels are high too, we can't actually utilize our fat stores for energy, can we? So That's right. It actually so inhibits control, the... Yeah, Jason Fung's idea that you have to control your insulin to be able to lose weight. Uh, that was a game changer for me. I, I did a similar thing to you. I started fasting about three years ago and dropped 15 or 15 or so kilos and have never put them back on. Whereas in the past, every time I lost weight, my metabolic rate had come down. When I ate normally, I put the weight back on. But yes. um, fasting fixed that. Fasting is really important. But one of the things about fasting that we need to be aware of as well is that often some of that initial weight loss is, is loss of glycogen stores and loss of water from the muscles. And you probably notice, I did, I, I noticed that uh, suddenly my, my muscles had sort of uh, virtually wasted away. So it's important to ensure you have adequate protein because protein has a number of effects, of course, amino acids, uh, which make up proteins, the building blocks uh, of, of, our, uh, of our muscles. Protein also has a really critical satiating effect, as does fat in our food. 
and particularly the healthy natural saturated fat, which, by the way, have not been linked to cardiovascular disease, uh, even as recent as a major systematic review last year by the American College of Cardiology, which showed that natural saturated fats in our diet, such as full-fat dairy, eggs, unprocessed red meat, even dark chocolate, are not linked with cardiovascular disease. This is another really critical people, uh, really critical um, uh, piece of evidence or information that people need to be aware of. So what's, what happened, let's say, 40, 50 years ago, we, we were told to uh, reduce our intake of saturated fats. So natural saturated fats got lumped into that. And so what happens when you drop saturated fats within food or within a, 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 an ultra-processed food uh, is that you have to replace the flavour, which for fat imparts, and also the satiating or the satisfaction uh, um, effect that proteins and fats have. And what happened when we reduced the fats in these foods is that they got replaced with sugar and carbohydrates. And as a result, we've had this huge exposure to sugar and carbohydrates in, in these low-fat products and in these ultra-processed products. So it's really important when you fast to ensure you have adequate natural saturated fat and protein to help uh, continue to maintain your, your, your muscle tone and to, to maintain your health. I mean, saturated fat is critical to our health and our, to our survival. And yet for the last 40, 50 years, it's been, we've been discouraged from eating it. Yeah, it's been demonised, hasn't it? And, and we need, particularly for our brain, we need, we need fats. We need those healthy fats to, to, for our brains to function well. And one of, the, one of the problems when we become insulin resistant too is that getting the sugar from across the blood-brain barrier doesn't work quite so well, whereas ketones and, and lactate and stuff will get across that barrier and keep your brain fueled well, which um, there's a lot of evidence suggesting now can actually help prevent, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's, which... Absolutely, yeah. There's, uh, there, there's some really interesting uh, research coming out of the UK being in touch with someone who's even found a link between uh, sugar and potentially uh, autism spectrum disorder as well. So right. it shows you how important this, this is. It's, it's very far-reaching. And, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes is just one, but we have ADHD, we have you know, autism, we have behavioural problems in, in, in people, we have mental health. I think uh, our poor diet is a driver of a lot of these concerning things that are going on. I have a question that I used to ask my diabetic patients when I was an optometrist, and I, I would ask them what's their... What's their understanding of what diabetes is? And the answers to that are just mind-boggling. That they people just don't know. And so I tried to come up with the best metaphor or the best analogy I could of what diabetes is. And because I used to work in a shopping center, and one of the things I'd say is, you know, how if you go shopping at Christmas, it's very, very crowded. All the car parks are taken, but there's more cars coming in all the time. And when you're diabetic, all of the places where you can store your sugar are taken. And what insulin does is just basically shoves cars into places where they can't belong and clogs up the whole car park and makes it not work properly anymore. So going back to the fasting side of things, fasting is a bit like not letting any cars in for a while, letting a few of the shoppers leave and create some space. Then when you do eat, you've got somewhere to put the sugar. I was amazed when I told people that every single diabetic I told that has just been like, oh my God, you've, I just make sense now what diabetes is. Yeah, it's a great analogy. I have to, I have to remember that because so much of the focus is on the blood sugar level and the medications that are used um, to basically push more sugar into our cells or excrete more sugar. So the focus is on sugar. But really the big driver 
of, of the complications of type 2 diabetes is, one, the high insulin level, and two, the high blood triglyceride level. So when I mentioned before, when, when we develop a fatty liver, it gets to a stage where the, the liver can't take any more fat on, and so it's exported away as triglyceride, and it's harmful, harmful to our health. And it's the high triglyceride level combined with the high insulin level, which is really a driver of a lot of the complications of type 2 diabetes. Those two uh, substances together help uh, create the fatty plaques, which then block our blood vessels, and that in turn gives rise to the complications. So you can see how insidious insulin is. And what we should be doing, what the GP should be doing, is measuring insulin levels, looking for insulin resistance, because by the time the sugar level starts to rise and we're into pre-diabetes, uh, then we've almost, we haven't missed the boat because we know we can put it into remission, but we're a long way down the track. You know, this is a continuum. This is not just uh, a series of, of steps. This is a continuum which starts with insulin resistance, then moves into high blood insulin level, then in, into increasing blood sugar level. But we've got to take our focus away from blood sugar back to insulin because that is the big driver of the problem. Yeah, it is because quite often they can, you know, you get your sugar levels down, but where's all of that sugar going? Mm-hmm. It's all it's going being shoved back into the cells. It's going into eyes, it's going into kidneys, it's going into places in your feet that aren't getting circulation anymore and all of a sudden we've got all of these these knock-on effects. So Yeah, yeah. So, and interesting though that with the with the what we call the oral hypoglycemics, they're the medications such as metformin, which really just hide the sugar from the blood rather than dealing with the underlying problem. But you know, once it gets to a stage where the, the, the blood sugar continues to rise and, and the oral medications such as metformin are not controlling them, patients then get put onto insulin. But what's interesting then is that insulin, they notice that they actually start to put on weight. So it just reinforces the fact that insulin is a driver of our of our of weight gain. It's a massive vicious cycle. But um, mm. so I, I, I guess our, our upstream thing is to try and do things like fasting, get rid of those really big sugars out of the way, and take us through our three A's again: awareness, accountability, and assistance. And yeah. everyone needs to be aware of those. They also need to be aware of those five A's of sugar toxicity as well: uh, addiction, alleviation accessibility, addition, and advertising. So if we start to think about uh, this dietary problem that we have in these terms, then we can start to really come up with solutions. And we need everyone on board to turn this around because it's a, it's a huge fight. And when you have these enormous ultra-processed food organisations trying to silence you, trying to counter those arguments with, with flawed evidence and nonsense, uh, it, it is uh, a big fight. It is a big fight and thank you for fighting it and, um, yeah, keep throwing those punches, mate. I love what you're doing and thank you very much for coming on the Reset Podcast. Thank you, Luke. Really enjoyed it and all the best to you too. And thank you very much for all the work you're doing and raising awareness through the books you're writing. They're wonderful. Thank you very much. Cheers, James. 